chapter 3 in these verses that we've been looking at for a couple of weeks now, from verse 21 to verse 31, we are dealing with things that are at the very heart, not only of Paul's letter, but of the entire Bible. And so, therefore, of reality itself, in all of life, in all of history, in all of eternity, there is nothing more important than these teachings. But how many people think that way in our day and time? Who is willing to acknowledge that in an age when rational thought, indeed even logical thinking itself, is suspect, suspect who believes that these are words of eternal life? Who even among the masses of professing Christian people really appreciates what Paul is saying here? We live in an age that is self-absorbed. We live in an age of immediate gratification. We tend to evaluate any teaching according to its apparent relevance to our felt needs, our present needs, our short-term goals. And yet no one can have any success teaching basic truth about man and the universe in such a closed way of thinking. I've noticed over the last 20 years uh, the tendency of people to read less and less. I first began to notice it when, uh, when Christian bookstores took the name book out of their name. When I, when I first went in the ministry you know, a thousand years ago, uh, you had the Baptist bookstore. They were all over the place. Baptist bookstore. And you had other bookstores, Evan, Evangel Bookstore in Knoxville. Then they, they took the name book out, uh, and they just became Christian stores. And I wonder if that was because they really weren't, really weren't selling any books. They were selling precious moments figurines and potpourri and cute little stickers that says, I read heart Jesus. How wonderful. Uh, and even in the books that they had, there were fewer and fewer books of polemical theology. The books were more uh, self-help oriented. Books by heretics like Joyce Meyer or Joel Osteen or Benny Hinn or any number of others. They were not really sound uh, books of, of theology because after all, who anymore is interested in theology? It is much, much better to uh, have a neat painting or a figurine or a cool t-shirt. What is tragic, I think, is this sentimental theological sloppiness is not only evident in uh, bookstores, but in churches as well. Many in the church today do not care if the youth or anyone else has taught much of anything, just as long as we get some real neat t-shirts that have a great Christian message on them that enables us to do all things out of a verse taken out of context. Uh, we, we're not concerned about theology. And yet theology is just the study of God. You, you realize that theologos, theology, is the Word of God. And how can you grow, how can you advance in your Christian life without knowing theology? Now listen, 
Everyone has a theology. Everyone. Even an atheist has a theology. His theology is he doesn't believe in God. But that's a theology. But all of you have a theology. Some of you have bad theology. I, I hope that you are moving toward a good theology. It, it is incumbent upon us as believers to learn what these verses like this teach us so that we will know the difference between sound theology and the uh, pop psychology and psychobabble that has infiltrated so much of the church today. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not whining. I, I'm, that has always been the case. All throughout the history of the church, that has been the case. It was no easier for the Apostle Paul to teach these doctrines of salvation to a generation that was enthralled with sex and the circus than for day, today's Christians to minister in a world that has been anesthetized through television and the internet and movies and all kinds of things. But we must try. As Paul did, we must learn the Word of God and teach the Word of God so that when someone comes to us with their theology, and it's a bad theology, we can say to them, we understand, of course, that is not what the Bible teaches. That may be what you believe, but that is not what the Bible teaches. We must teach the Word of God because it is the Word of God alone that really matters. We've already seen that Paul introduces this uh, section of the letter with those two little words, but now. And we looked at what a marvelous contrast that is with what has come before, where he has condemned the entire human race, where we see that none seek after God, that, that men are worthless, that they are not looking for God. Uh, but now, he says, these words indicate that something of great importance has taken place and that this is the substance of the good news that is proclaimed by Paul and the other messages, messages of the gospel. There's a simple outline of this teaching. Number one, God has provided a righteousness of his own for men and women, and it is a righteousness that we do not possess ourselves. This is the very heart of the theme of the Word of God. You must have a perfect righteousness to enter into God's heaven. You don't have it. But God has provided it. Number two, this righteousness is by grace. We don't deserve it. In fact, we are incapable of ever deserving it. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we will still not deserve this righteousness that God has provided by His grace. Number three, it is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in dying for His people, redeeming them from their sin, that has made this grace on God's part possible. That is the reason for the now in the but now. It is because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ 
that there is a Christian gospel. And this righteousness, number four, that God has graciously provided becomes ours through simple faith. How do you get this perfect righteousness that God demands that you have if you are to enter heaven? You believe. You believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day. You believe that God will impute to you this perfect righteousness and that God will impute to Christ all your sins. That's it. And believing and trusting in, in God in regard to the work of Jesus Christ is something that anyone can do. Jew or Gentile, black or white, tall or short, educated or uneducated, doesn't matter. Anyone can believe. As we go through these verses in more detail, I hope that the importance of these teachings will become increasingly clear. But we can see their importance even at this point by noticing that they are almost an exact repetition of the great themes that Paul has already listed for us in the thesis of the letter. They were stated in the opening address in the first five verses of chapter 1. And then if you go back and look at the theme of the book of Romans in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, he is saying the same thing here that he said there, that a righteousness from God has been revealed by faith. So I say again, there is nothing in time or eternity that is more important than these teachings right here. The issues of eternity hang on what you believe about these things. The forgiveness of sin, the reception of eternal life, being right with a holy God is found here. And even even if it brings the scorn of our contemporaries. In fact, it will bring the scorn of our contemporaries. It will bring it. And yet, these things are so vital. These things are so important. These things are so critical that we must believe them, that we must understand them. I want you to notice, first of all, this morning, that this righteousness is the provision of God. Paul's chief point is that the righteousness of God has been disclosed in the person and the work of Christ. Before, we did not have any truly adequate way of understanding what this righteousness is like. But now we can see it in Jesus Christ. And on the other hand, Paul is also teaching that God is the source of this righteousness. And that it is Jesus Christ that makes it available to us. The translators of the New International Version preferred that idea, for they wrote, but now a righteousness from God has been made known. This righteousness which is of God is also from God. It is God's very righteousness. It comes from Him. What is the righteousness that is imputed to those who believe? The perfect work of Christ. So that you stand before God clothed in the righteousness of Christ. 
It is his righteousness, his very own righteousness that we need. I've, I've told you a number of times before, what is required to get into heaven? What, what do you have to have to get to heaven? A lot of people would say, well, this be better than most people. You know, don't rob banks. You know, don't be a mass murderer. You know, if you're better than most everybody else, you'll get there. No. No, the Bible says it takes absolute perfection to get to heaven. Absolute, complete perfection. You cannot even have one sin. If you do, you can't get there. Well, well, Brother Bob, we've known you for quite some time. You don't, you don't fit that criteria. You are mighty right, I do not. That is why I have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And God has imputed to me His perfect righteousness. When you believe the gospel, when you trust Jesus Christ, God imputes to you the very righteousness of Christ. He puts it in your account. In your account, there is the perfect righteousness of Christ. And then he imputes all of your sin to Christ. It's all laid upon him. Apart from him, we would, we would have no idea what God requires. We, we would think we could do it ourselves. That's what the Apostle Paul thought before his encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road. He had compared, him, he had compared himself with the other moral people of his day, and he included, if anyone thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Then he saw Jesus on the Damascus Road, and for the first time, he understood what true righteousness was. For the first time, the Apostle Paul saw that all of his good deeds were worthless. That all of his pedigree, being a Hebrew of the Hebrews, meaning there had never been a Gentile in his lineage, meaning keeping the law was not enough. He had not done it. And so he said, for the sake of Christ... I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Now get this. Paul was a doctor of theology. He would have had numerous advanced degrees. He was one of the most knowledgeable men of the Old Testament of his time. He was meticulous in following the dictates of the traditions of the law. Uh, he says that he had a righteousness by the law was blameless. That doesn't mean he thought he was sinless. He simply made a sacrifice that was called for whenever he knew about sin. All of that what a pedigree. What a, what a marvelous, marvelous person. And Paul said, when I saw Jesus, I understood that all of that was rubbish. That's one of the strongest words in the Greek language. I can't really tell you what it really means. You'd fire me. The word is skubalon. The closest I'll come to it is crap. Paul said, that is exactly what all of my righteousness was. All of my good works, 
All of my deeds, all of my righteousness was nothing. Rubbish. Dung is the way that King James translates it. You've got to have a righteousness that comes from God. A righteousness of God revealed in Christ. A righteousness that God will give you. If God did not give it, we could never earn it. We could never win it. That's another way of saying that salvation is a gift. It is on the ground of a gift of God that all of the redeemed will ascribe praise to God for saving. This righteousness comes only by the performance of Christ. You need to hold these ideas together. Righteousness is the provision of God. It's a gift of God. And it is only by the work of Jesus Christ. We cannot attain righteousness by ourselves. And the way God has provided it for us is by the work of Jesus Christ. That is seen in the phrase that Paul uses here, apart from the law. That doesn't mean that the law has no value, of course. The very sentence reminds us of its value, for it says, the law and the prophets testified to this righteousness that would come in Jesus Christ. In our last study, we looked at some of those ways, some of those ways that are seen in the Old Testament. At the very end of Romans, Paul, Romans 3, Paul will return to this subject. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. The law clearly had value in the Old Testament era, and it continues to have value now. Theologians usually speak of the law of God in two ways, two purposes of it. Number one, to restrain evil, much the way that secular law would do. I mean, if, if a speed limit was not posted on Interstate 75, how fast would you drive to Knoxville? If you don't want to be scared to death, don't ask my wife that question because it would be way too fast. But the speed limit is there. Why? To restrain idiots who drive too fast. Okay? The purpose of the law is to restrain evil. Secondly, it's to reveal man's sin and to point us to the need for Jesus Christ. Those are important functions. But the one thing that the law cannot do and was never meant to do is to save a person by their observance of it. That's why Paul speaks of a righteousness of God apart from the law. And that's why this announcement is such good news. Although it's very difficult for people who are not believers to understand or accept. Too easy. Too simple. It's just too simple. We want to do something. <laughs> the law, as Paul will later say in Romans 7, is holy and righteous and good. If we could be saved by the law, the law of God would save us. But we cannot, and it cannot. We cannot keep God's commandments. If the law is to have any benefit for us, it must be by enabling us, enabling us to see our inability to satisfy the standard God has set, perfect perfection, holiness, by our own efforts. The purpose of the law is to show us we're sinners and turn us to Christ. 
that we might be saved. That is why Paul says this righteousness of God comes not by the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Think of this. When God gave the law to Israel on Mount Sinai, the very books that contained the law also contained instructions for the sacrifice of lambs on the Day of Atonement. Why? It was, it's as if God was saying, look, here's my law. It's perfect, holy, and good. Keep it, you'll be saved. But you can't keep it. So here are, are some instructions for sacrifices. Sacrifices that point to the one who will keep it, who will die for your sins, for the law that you have broken, so that his perfect righteousness might be given to you. God gave the commandments, but he also gave the altar and the principle of substitution because he knew we could not keep his law. So this righteousness is the provision of God. It is given to us by the work of Jesus Christ. And then notice that this righteousness is peculiar to Christianity. It is absolutely unique. It is apart from the law. John Murray said, in justification there is no contribution, preparatory, accessory, or subsidiary that is given by works of the law. Another way of saying we don't contribute anything to our salvation. A great Christian of bygone years said, in salvation you provide the sinner and God provides everything else. In my salvation, I provided a sinner, me, and God provided everything else. God's righteousness is to be received apart from any human works whatsoever. And that distinguishes Christianity from all other religions in the world. All religions have their distinguishing points, but listen, there are only two kinds of religion in the world. I don't know how many religions there are, hundreds, but there are only two categories. There are religions of works. They have various ladders that you climb up in order to attain the presence of God. There are various ways that that is done, various ways that it's called by. So over here you have religion of works. That's all the religions in the world except one. Over here is Christianity. It is a religion of grace. It is not you're doing something for God. It is God doing something for you. It is God giving you salvation as a gift. The, the Bible is, is, is so bent on you understanding that that it will use the words a free gift, you know, which is redundant. If it's a gift, wouldn't it have to be free? I mean, a gift by very definition must be free, and yet Paul calls it a free gift. It is peculiar to Christianity. Only Christianity humbles a person by saying, there is nothing you can do except believe to receive salvation. Jesus Christ did all the work. He kept the law of God perfectly. 
He was sinless, without fault. He went to a cross and died for our sins. But because he was sinless, death could not hold him. And on the third day, he rose from the dead by the power of a sinless life. Believe on him, and God will impute to you his perfect righteousness. Into your account will go the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Of course, after we are saved, we have an obligation to discipleship, to serve him, to love him. But we are not saved by doing those things. All, of our, all our actions can bring on us, even the best of actions, is the judgment of God. Because we are trying to achieve heaven apart from the way that God has provided. And therefore, it's vitally important that we examine ourselves and make sure that we are trusting in Christ and Him alone for our salvation, not what we suppose that we can do. It's very important, I think, that we recognize that, that we understand that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Righteousness without law, righteousness apart from human character, righteousness apart from even a consideration of the nature of the being that is made righteous, righteousness that comes from God to an ungodly man. When a person is first presented with this pure core of Christianity, the reaction is usually revulsion. <laughs> we want to save ourselves, or we think we're already good enough. Doesn't really matter. And when someone suggests that we're not, it's abhorrent to us. We don't want, we don't want a religion that demands we throw ourselves at the mercy of God, trusting Him and Him alone for our salvation. But Christianity is not only the religion we need so desperately, it's the only one worth having. If salvation is the gift of God apart from human works, then you can be saved now. You don't have to do anything else. You don't have to do any more good works. You don't even have to have ever done a good work. Salvation can be a present experience. It doesn't have to be somewhere out in the future when you have done this or that or you've lived up to this standard or that standard. It's only in Christianity that salvation moves into the present. That today is the day of salvation. That now is the time. We can do that because the work of Christ is done. When Jesus Christ said on the cross, it is finished, He meant it. It is finished. The work is done. Jesus did it. And we must receive it. And since it is a past accomplishment, salvation can be ours right now. That's why Joseph Hart, the great hymn writer of days gone by, wrote, Come you weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous. Sinners, Jesus came to call. And number two, if salvation is a gift of God apart from human works, salvation is certain. 
If I don't do anything to earn salvation, I can't do anything to lose it. If I don't do anything to receive salvation, there's nothing I can do that will cause me to lose it. Salvation is of God from beginning to end, sure and unwavering, simply because God himself is sure and unwavering. God will keep us in his grace once we have received it. If I can do anything to save myself, then I can do something to unsave myself. And you make sure that if it's possible, I'll do it. Then finally, if salvation is a gift of God apart from human works, boasting is excluded. All the glory in salvation belongs to God. Would you want to be in a heaven where boasting is allowed? The boasting of human beings on earth is repugnant. It's hard enough to stomach, isn't it? You ever been around somebody that just constantly brags about what they've done and how smart they are and how wonderful they are, and you just think, would you shut up? Imagine being in heaven and listening to somebody say, well, there's old Bob Kerr down there. Yeah, he wasn't as good as me. He didn't make it. (laughs) I tried to tell him he needed to live up to my standard, but he wouldn't do it. So I'm here, and he's not. There you go. I'm here because I deserved it. I'm here because I worked hard. You know, I got up earlier than other people. I worked harder than other people. I made more money. I was better looking. Had a better education. (laughs) No. (laughs) No, in heaven, all we'll be able to say is we were miserable sinners, wretched and vile beyond belief. And God, in his marvelous grace and mercy, has saved us has given us the righteousness of Christ, has blotted out all of our sins. There'll be no boasting in heaven because salvation is a gift. How can you boast about a gift? It is apart from the law, which means it is apart from human effort. Paul said to the church at Ephesus, for by grace are you saved through faith not of works, lest any man should boast. No one in heaven will be praising man. No one in heaven will be bragging about themselves. All of them will be giving glory to God and to God only. To God alone belongs the glory. For salvation is a gift from Him. Thank God. It is that way. We're going to stand and sing a hymn of affirmation. We're going to sing...